0: One of the hallmarks of successful developers is continuous learning. The best developers I know don't just keep learning, it's one of the things that drives them. That's why I'm excited to bring you this episode on 10 books Python developers should read. You'll meet Timo Kola, who is an avid reader and self-learner in the Python space. He's found 10 books from his experience that have had a huge effect on him, and we'll discuss those now. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 130, recorded July 18, 2017. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter, where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. Talk Python to Me is partially supported by our training courses. Have you tried to learn Python but got stuck or lost focus? We know how it feels to try and jam fact after fact loop construct after turn hair expression into your head at best it's boring at worst it can turn you off programming altogether that's why we built our course python jumpstart by building 10 apps this course guides you through carefully planned applications it starts simple but progresses to quite real apps best of all you won't be learning dry facts you'll be learning like the pros do by building real applications and learning in context if you want to start building with Python, just visit talkpython.fm slash course to get started. Timo, welcome to Talk Python. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I'm really looking forward to talking about these books. Like You and I are both avid readers, and I think one of the best things you can do for your career, or just even as a person, is to you know keep reading. And so maybe we can use this episode to inspire a bunch of people to do some technical and some not-so-technical reading. Sure sounds great. Yeah, it sounds fun. Huh? But before we get to that, let's start with your story. How did you get into programming in Python?
1: I started with Python in 2005. I started programming professionally like 97. I was a philosophy major and I was thinking whether I should be starting an academic career or get a real job and I ended up getting a real job. Then I did something like C and Perl and all sorts of stuff and slowly wandered into <laughs> sort of a middle management in big companies. And In and 2005, I figured out that I don't want to do that. I want to be a programmer and kind of relearned programming back then. I had done something like, I always did something like Perl programming, very small throwaway scripts. And then I was given a task of writing an Excel for time reporting in a team. It was quite funny. It was a really big company, but they handled time bookkeeping with an Excel sheet.
0: That's really funny. Isn't it weird how like some of these huge companies like... They'll waste crazy amounts of money on certain things, and then others like, no, we can't do any. There's no system we're gonna buy. We're not gonna build one or anything. We're just gonna like here use Excel.
1: Yeah, it was like a here's a network drive, and everyone writes down their own Excel sheet, and we need a summary report for the management, and it, it was like a sixty thousand people company, and oh my gosh, they didn't have a, like a centralized process for that, and then I ended up writing a, first that reporting system in Perl then I thought, well, my friend was using Python and I thought, well, this looks neat, although I hated, of course, the white space first. (laughs) Got used to that in two weeks. Figured out that, hey, this is actually a feature. Reading is more important than writing. And then well, I wrote that and a couple of years later my friend said, well, it's still reporting full hours for you, (laughs) the system that you did back then. That's how I got into Python and I've done after that I've done web stuff and previous project before this company that I'm now working in, I was two years doing Android programming and and all the time I've I've been doing something little with Python. I've done quite a few of Twitter bots. That's a kind of a fun way to keep up your Python programming skill.
0: Oh cool. Yeah. So tell me about some of your Twitter bots.
1: The most interesting ones are in Finnish, but but I have two James Joyce readers a Ulysses reader that look, reads Ulysses perpetually by James Joyce and also Finnegan's Wake. These two kind of uh, really hard books split to 140 characters at a time and it's sometimes it's quite funny and most of the time it's quite boring to follow them. And...
0: Yeah I'll put the two Twitter accounts in uh, in the show notes so people can follow them if they want. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, nice. And you said you also do some chatbots, like some AWS Lambda chatbots or something like that.
1: Yeah, that's what I do at the work right now. We we define it something like like a conversational commerce. We take a let's say a product catalog, any kind of a structural data associated with that, uh, add some like handmade rules, and try to make it as, as automated as possible and generate a like a chatbot that you can talk to a. Uh, product catalog with.
0: Oh, that's really cool. So are you using like Alexa skills or like how you how are you understanding the words there?
1: Oh well we are both experimenting with like uh Wit AI, which I think is the state of the art at the moment and and then we need to have our own bits that understand Finnish or take the Finnish sentences and then take out the stuff that Finnish language adds there. Finnish language is quite different from from many of the other European languages, like English and Germany, or or even Swedish.
0: Yeah, sure. Nice. So, uh, are you enjoying working on chatbots?
1: Yeah, it's also well. It's kind of interesting to see. We are quite aggressive in user testing and how how to see what what's like the expected level of intelligence that people want from them, and it's the bar is quite high. So.
0: Yeah, I've heard people describe both the like the voice assistant and the chatbot text equivalents of having this problem of the uncanny valley. Yeah. And I think this problem originally it was stated in terms of like animated movies. So think Shrek or something like that, where if it clearly the characters clearly look animated, people are fine. If they look perfectly real or are real, people are fine. But if they're really, really close to real but not quite, it kinda creeps people out. And things are getting good enough that we're getting a little bit into this uncanny valley where it works, it works, it works. Wait a minute! You don't understand that? That doesn't make any sense. Why don't you understand that? Right? What do you think?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly what's going on there. And also, it's kind of a even if the the system is quite smart, it makes different mistakes than human would do. It's what we found out in our user studies is like that. You really need to concentrate on on a task satisfy the user's need on, on a single task. That's how you get the... And then and concentrate on, on one specific domain. That's how you get the most satisfactory results. When you open it up, you people start expecting it to be able to answer everything. And that's... Yeah. That's when it goes sour.
0: Yeah, but it's going to get better, right? I mean, it's already in the last five years gotten so good. And all of these Amazon Echoes and Siri and HomePods and all these things are really going to push these companies to make it legitimate. Google Home, for example.
1: Yeah, exactly. I have an Echo and I you quickly forget how magical it would have been five years ago. It's, it's <laughs> like it can pick up your speech on, the, on another room and usually it's quite, at least it understands what you said. It doesn't necessarily do anything smart with it, but it understands <laughs> sure. you.
0: Yeah. What are your three favorite things that you do with your Echo?
1: Setting up timers well, and alarms. And
0: like wake me up tomorrow at 6.30?
1: Yeah, wake me up at tomorrow and I I almost exclusively do my calendar appointments through Echo because it's quite natural and it's You can have your shopping bags in your hand and start I need to do laundry tomorrow and add that to my calendar, stuff like that. Yeah. Then one of the favorite things is to watch my kids interact with that. I think even if I'm a bit skeptical that they will be as big as, let's say, mobile apps or something like that, but when you see kids interacting with them, it's it's like, they really genuinely try to have a grasp on, on what is going on there, and, and they are really entertained by something like Alexa. Oh, sorry, <laughs> probably someone's Alexa went off there. But sing a song, and then sing a song, and or tell a joke, and it's kind of funny. Funny how kids interact with that, and I, I think it's it's going to lead something like that voice is going to be something like a touch screen in, in the sense that you expect that feature to be there if you go to a vending machine and you could do something more quickly by saying something to it or, or be frustrated with it and you expect it to listen to you quite the way like like after iphone you started touching every screen even if if they didn't <laughs> didn't work yeah that's right Uh,
0: after the ipad came out there were videos of kids like touching real magazines like little you know two-year-olds going this one is broken yeah exactly (laughs) voice will probably be like that it won't listen to me it's a refrigerator it doesn't talk i'm sorry yeah nice all right yeah i think it's it's definitely going to be an interesting wave and i think it's it must be fun to work with it yeah so that's probably a, a good place to switch over, start talking about the books. So you've chosen 10 plus one books for us that you feel are pretty essential reading for Python programmers.
1: Yeah. I don't know if, if they these are like the definitive 10 books to read, but I, uh, I try to pick up things that are, are relevant for a newcomer and relevant for someone intermediate. And then there are a couple of books that are Totally out outside of the box of a regular Python programmer. You, everyone is going to read Python programming at, at least at some point, And everyone is everyone probably ends up seeing like a, starting with the learning Python. But I hope I picked a nicer alternative to learning Python in in this yeah. system.
0: Yeah, nice. So your first book is Automate the Boring Stuff: Python Practical Programming for Total Beginners by Friend of the show, Al Swigert.
1: Yes, I've listened to that episode and I today when I was preparing for this and I was checking through the book and I realized, hey, this is actually really relevant still to me. It's a really good introductory book, but then there are chapters like automating Excel workflow or today I discovered that there's a chapter about image manipulation that I, I will almost immediately take into use after this, when I, I go back and start writing stuff.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. It's a very gentle introduction, and I, one of the things I like about it is it has some applied aspects, because a lot of times I feel like the the biggest mistake people, books, presentations, whatever, make when they're trying to teach programmers is, they go, here are all the facts, and assume at the end of this you know semester course, or this book, or whatever, you'll be able to do something interesting. But for now, here's how you define a variable. Here's what a string is. Here's how you define a loop. Here's how you define a function. And it's just boring, 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 right? And so this book actually comes with a bunch of little problems you can solve. Like One is automating workflows with Excel, which I'm sure resonated well with you, given your background.
1: Yeah, I think that's that kind of um, solve a problem is really essential for someone trying to learn a new skill. It's especially if you are not a programmer yourself, there's this book, and I, I think that many of the Raspberry Pi books are extremely good examples of those. Either they are funny, or either they solve your real problem, and that's a good like uh, motivation to go through all that string and list and uh, or tuple stuff that you end up doing with Python.
0: Yeah, it's it's really great. So I also had Al recently on the show on episode 106 for his invent your own computer games with Python. So depending on your experience level and what makes you tick, if you want to like actually get work done, check out the automate the boring stuff to learn Python. If you want to write games, like maybe you're trying to get your younger kid who's in high school or something interested in Python, maybe the invent your own computer games would be a, a good one. You also pointed out that Al has this as a video course on Udemy. And so I feel a bit of a kinship to Al here. Like he and I both are living a similar life. Like he writes the books and has the courses. I have write I do the podcasts and have the courses. And so yeah, if you want to take this as a video course version, that's available as well. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Okay. And then the next one is actually a really short book, right?
1: Yeah. This is something that I when I was learning was on my desk also often I carried with it because it's it's kind of a, I had trouble wrapping my head around Python lists. There was something really, really, I couldn't tell when the method was mutable and when it's going to create me a new one. And then that kind of stuff yeah. is, mm-hmm. and it's, it's kind of a thing that you really need to just put it in your long-term memory. It doesn't.
0: Right. Like sorted of list versus list.sorted. Things like yes.
1: that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: So the book you're referencing is Python Pocket Reference Python in Your Pocket by Mark Lutz.
1: Yeah, uh, sadly it's it's like 2 or 3 years old already and I think it's Python 3.3. 3. If oh no no actually it's Python uh Python 3.6 as well as covered so. Oh so great yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah and most of the stuff like long as it's Python 3 hasn't actually changed. Yeah, that much it's more additive rather than changes too yeah
1: yeah and it's always with this kind of a technical books there's a, some sort of risk of obs- obsolescence if it's tied to a certain version of something and uh, the books that I tried, chose here should be so that they are either up to date or or then are timeless <laughs> yeah
0: yeah yeah there's a few books in, in this list that are definitely timeless and then Oh, more timeless than others but yeah this is really nice like i i'm pretty good at memorizing these obscure details of programming languages and whatnot but the, you know the one that i really need a pocket reference for is javascript i'm always like <laughs> yeah god how do i iterate a, an array correctly in javascript again and this like it's always i feel like i'm always googling for javascript stuff even though i've been doing it for years but uh, yeah python yeah this is cool for people learning python
1: yeah exactly i i have the javascript one and css one and i the only thing is that javascript and css they are moving moving so fast that you're probably learning something <laughs> that you don't need to learn when you're <laughs> yeah, trying probably. to learn yeah
0: yeah so then the next one you picked i think is a really interesting book as well and that's the python cookbook by david beasley and brian jones
1: yeah it's i had it before, and I don't know where I lost my copy, but it was really essential. I think when I started learning Python, Stack Overflow didn't exist at all. (laughs) So this kind of a ready-made recipe for your program that you can just drop in.
0: Yeah, so the idea is that it's broken into general areas like stuff to do with strings, stuff to do with data structures, numbers, iteration, files. And then for each one of these, there's maybe 15 to 20... How do I do this? How do I yeah. iterate over a fixed set of records? How do I print a file to the console? How do I communicate with serial ports? How do I print bad file names? And so on and so on, right?
1: Yeah, and this was really essential back then. Nowadays, it would be a good reference, but often you just type something into Google and it end up in Stack Overflow. And...
0: Sure, so I think this is interesting coming at it from two ways. Like, the way that you're talking about where you type something into Stack Overflow is, I know I want to like make a temporary file and directory. So you type maybe that into Google and it probably finds something on Stack Overflow and you're kind of good. But it could be that you're coming from a place of less experience and you want to learn how... You, you kind of want to get a feel for like All right, What can I do with the file system and files in Python? Yeah. Like you could go through these 15 or 20 things. And you're like, whoa, I actually you would be pretty capable if you could almost treat each one of these as a project. You know what I mean? Like people who are new often have a hard time finding something concrete to practice. Yeah. And it seems like there's, you know, hundreds of little practices with the solution right here. And I think that's pretty nice.
1: Yeah. And also kind of a guaranteed quality of these when you Google and stack overflow (laughs) stuff, you (laughs) May yeah, well, you also some...
0: waste a lot of time on Stack Overflow because they're trying to do a thing, but they're trying to do it slightly differently than you were trying to do it, so it doesn't quite fit. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and especially if you're new to technology, you really can't tell good answers from bad answers, and it doesn't mean that the uh, the up- most upvoted one is is the best one.
0: Yeah, sometimes you're like, <laughs> if I could just... Uncheck that accepted answer because you know the next one's better.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's one of those first steps of understanding technology is to start understanding which of the Stack Overflow questions are bad and which ones are good. So
0: yeah, I think you know looping it back to book one. I'm pretty sure Al swigert shows you like how to take like a traceback error and use Google to find the answer for that. (laughs) How to fix it?
1: Yeah, and that's one of those things that has really changed in 20 years. It's it's like. You were completely screwed twenty years ago if <laughs> something like that happened and it, it didn't show up on Alta or something. It's, it's like the way of working has changed, and I, I think it's really cool. And it's sometimes you lose the sight of how much we have progressed and how much yeah. easier stuff is. And not, yeah, it's, for sure. it's it's not only good, but it's it's mostly good. It's my, it's mostly good. I agree. It's yeah. mostly good.
0: This portion of Talk Python to Me has been brought to you by Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, relying on users to report errors, digging through log files, trying to debug issues, or getting millions of alerts just flooding your inbox and ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insight, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. Adding Rollbar to your Python app is as easy as pip install Rollbar. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in eight minutes or less. Are you considering self-hosting tools for security or compliance reasons? Then you should really check out Rollbar's compliant SaaS option. Get advanced security features and meet compliance without the hassle of self-hosting, including HIPAA, ISO 27001, Privacy Shield, and more. They'd love to give you a demo. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to talkpython.fm slash Rollbar and check them out. The next one is uh, switching us over to working with data, mostly from a data science, not database perspective, with Python for data analysis, data wrangling with Pandas, NumPy, and IPython with Wes McKinley. McKinney, sorry, Wes.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I I thought this was something like like that. It was already years old, but it seems to be that there's a new version coming in September. So IPython stopped stuff is uh, updated with also jupiter stuff and all all that kind of stuff so this is very good for like most of the like machine learning deep learning and uh, that kind of stuff is most really really boring cleaning up and finding data and this is this covers like that part you you need to know right
0: and that to me is like the primary goal of of pandas right yeah pandas is all about like loading up semi-structured data putting it into a consistent structure, maybe reorganizing it like a group by or something like that, fixing the bad data filtering out the bad data and getting it ready to then go do a thing
1: with, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's like filtering out noise and either filtering out the missing data or adding default values for that. And that kind of a stuff that is, you really need to know. is I think if, if you come somewhere from like R, it's like the forte of R is is cleaning up data and and putting it up in a let's say a table structure, and this is the same thing for Python and very important when when getting into machine learning and all all kinds of data analysis and maybe data visualization
0: tasks. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. So it starts by introducing you to IPython, Jupyter, and NumPy and Pandas. And then it really talks about like loading, cleaning, transforming, merging, reshaping data, which it's, you know, that that is so, so powerful with that and even some visualization stuff. So yeah, it's, it's pretty cool if, if uh, you got to do a lot of that kind of thing, then yeah, Pandas is a good place to look. And this book seems like a really good one. It's from Wes McKinney, who is the creator of Pandas. So that's uh, a a good, (laughs) you definitely a definitive source of knowledge for that, that library. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the next one that we're going to talk about is not as new as the 2016 version of that last book. It's called Working Effectively with Legacy Code. What's the story of this one?
1: This is kind of a, like a, more like a book that teaches you how to think about code. And uh, in, in a realistic situation, you rarely get to start something new. Usually, if you are done consultation like me, it's, it's like you end up somewhere that it's all so, Already late and already not delivering what should be there, mm-hmm. and this is uh, this is answering questions. What what can you do about that? What can you do there? And and it's it's like comes with the definition. So what is legacy code? It's bluntly defines legacy code as something that doesn't have a test, and then it it goes on like a slowly teaching you how to move from that zero state something that is almost enjoyable, building up, decoupling the system, building up unit tests. Yeah, I
0: feel like this book is certainly required reading. Even though it's not based on Python, I think it does some C++ and some Java. Maybe there's even a C Sharp version, I can't recall. But this book is kind of part of a trifecta of the working with effectively legacy code refact the original refactoring book by martin fowler
1: yeah that's an excellent book yes
0: yeah yeah and then the agile principles patterns and practices by robert c martin like those three kind of come together to attack like the same problem from multiple directions and the concept that I still remember, so I'm I'm looking here at my Amazon page for this book, and it says, you purchased this item on June 10th, 2005. So it's not a new book, but it's a, it's really, like you said, does teach you to think in interesting ways about systems, especially systems, which they called brownfield systems, not greenfield, where it's like, you know, here's half a million lines of code. It's been working for 15 years. It's mission critical. Please, you Do not break it, but you have to now take it over and add features to it. Like, what do you do? Yeah. (laughs) So there's all these interesting ways of like, how do you get it under test? How do you create what the biggest thing that comes from this one in my mind is this concept of seams. How do you create these seams where this huge monolithic, brittle thing becomes flexible in, in the certain ways that you need to extend it? And how do you carve off these little subsystems that change frequently that are very maintainable? Without yeah. breaking the thing, and I think that's just really um, very interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I really like the notion of seam. It's it's like, oh, this it, it has a name. I've been doing this ten years, but I <laughs> I, I didn't know this <laughs> this technique had a name.
0: It's cool. Yeah, here's this thing that is inflexible, but in this one little axis, it is flexible, and that's what I needed. So it's good, right? Yeah, yeah. So definitely recommend, I actually recommend all three of those books, but working effectively with legacy code, well, it's definitely uh, something that will change the way uh, that you think about programming and especially large old systems. Yeah,
1: yeah. And uh, that's where we all end up at some point doing old, <laughs> old big systems. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right. We all we all end up there somehow. All right. The next one is a uh, perfect carry-on from this concept of testing. But zooming forward in Python to something that's just now being released by my friend and Python Bytes co-host Brian Auchen. Yeah, Python testing with pytest.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I bought it and I. I started reading it. It is one of those books that. After each chapter, you need to go and change something in your code. <laughs> I've used Pytest like before. I've been doing
0: it wrong for years. Yeah. Oh my gosh! I got yeah. to put this down and go fix it right now.
1: Yeah, I like the Pytest philosophy compared to like uh, unit test and NOS. It's more Pythonic. And reading this book, I realized, oh, I've used like ten percent of the possibilities there. It's like, and it's quick read. You probably will read it through in one evening or two, and it's. If you are not like a super familiar with pytest, it, it will probably make you change your project structure and make it more pytestable.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, Brian did a really good job with this, and so he talks about writing test functions, using the search stuff, all the standard things, you know, fixtures, but also things like the tempter fixture, the monkey patching stuff, the doc test namespaces, and and plugins like finding and using the PyTest plugins, even how to create your own. So, yeah, very, very cool stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: All right. The next one we have is sort of the other side of the Panda story. Once you have the data, how do you get going? And I would say this is one of the hottest developer software areas around just with machine learning. So the book is hands-on machine learning with scikit-learn and tensorflow
1: yeah it's it's i had like half a dozen of these books and i I think this one was like the best companion to all those online courses that everyone probably go through either the coursera one or the udacity one or one of my favorites is course.fast.ai it's like you go through the course and then you have a like a vague understanding of the concepts and then you need to read the book there's like the definitive books like the deep learning by Ian Goodfellow or the elements of statistical learning but they probably are too heavy to start with this is kind of a goes through like many of the algorithms quickly it it has like a practice questions and is all around good reference uh, to accompany you you with with learning through trial and error and through perhaps some online course. And well, this is probably one of those books that wouldn't appear on this list maybe in a year or two. There probably are going to be many, many other books, but this one was like the books that have come out this year. I think this one was my favorite on this topic
0: it's really cool so it has like the fundamentals of machine learning for the first part and it just goes into like what does an end-to-end machine learning project look like classification models support vector machines decision trees all that kind of stuff and then it gets into actual neural networks and deep learning things with tensorflow and training deep neural networks and and stuff like that which is really cool stuff even how to just like do distributed computation of tensorflow across multiple machines and gpus and all kinds of good stuff it sounds really really fun all right do you get to do any of this kind of stuff with your uh chatbots
1: i've mostly done stuff with finnish language like i have this a huge data set of finnish cursing and i've been going through that with like word to work and other kinds of machine learning and uh, clustering algorithms to see what kind of patterns i can find and it's kind of a funny way to look at data that makes you lose your lose like uh your belief in, in other human beings but also it, it really really gets you nice uh, nice patterns around what kind of things make people curse and
0: you know, what are people really passionate about?
1: <laughs> well it's there's this kind of a stuff that well probably would get moderated in a in a forum. It's it's like Any type of day to day politics and, uh, but then, then there's sports and human relationships and and, uh, stuff like that. That gets, well, you could probably, well, this is Finnish, so it's, you could probably follow Finnish sports team how they are doing through how people are cursing. They are either cursing (laughs) because we are losing or uh, cursing that, well, we won this time. And
0: yeah. (laughs) Or, uh, how are they expressing their extreme emotion in a positive or negative way?
1: Well, it, it's mostly about the same. It's, it's yeah, like,
0: it's it's tough. <laughs> I'm sure it's actually a really tricky uh, a natural language processing problem.
1: Yeah, it's something that uh, I have a data set of like 100 million Finnish tweets that contain a curse word, and I'm I'm trying to figure <laughs> out a way to make that somehow public and usable to everyone. It's really interesting data.
0: That is actually pretty cool. Nice. All right. So the next one that we're going to talk about is About Face, The Essentials of Interactive Design by Alan Cooper and uh, some co-authors. And this one had been on my list, my reading list for a very long time. I haven't read it and it's kind of grouped in there with, uh, you know, Stephen Krug's Don't Make Me Think, um, 100 Things Every Designer Needs to Know About People and the Design of Everyday Things. A couple of those are about physical things, but this is about interface design, right?
1: Yeah, this is interface design. And it's, well, it, it starts with like, a, like on the conceptual level, how to design systems. That's kind of a, a probably only good to know if you're a Python programmer. But then it goes on like with the stuff like that are uh, like immediately usable or. That make you think stuff like that. Don't make stupid error messages. Make the software that you're creating think it as a like a like a service person. You don't want to forget things that you have promised to a user. You don't want to pester the user with with unnecessary questions all the time. And you don't lose your customer stuff. If if they give you something, you don't lose that. It has really, really good metaphors of how your program should be that it solves the user problem and not only your problem as a as a business or as a, as a developer
0: right and it has a i think this might be one of the first places where the concept of personas came from
1: i think this is the origin of that but i'm, I'm not 100% sure yeah so
0: the idea is to break up the users into prototypical groups and then try to think through the interacting with your software whether it's a website, it's an app, it's whatever. Think through using it. I guess you could even do it for um, an API, like an open source library, if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Think through, like, working with it with that persona, the various personas, and, like, what are their goals? What do they want out of this? What are they bringing to the table? How are they going to work with it? And things like this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Uh, thinking your software through your user's point of view.
0: Yeah. It sounds really cool.
1: Yeah. It's something that I revisited lately. I had it read it like, 15 years ago when it was first or second edition and it's really good book it's it has really good like a one sentence summarizations of what makes software good not only the user interface good
0: yep and this one is from september 2014 the fourth edition so very nice
1: yeah it's up to date to ios 7 level or something like that so it's it has pretty recent UI screenshots in there.
0: Nice. And then the next one that you chose is more of a high level thinking about stuff. <laughs> Not necessarily software in particular, but even politics and society and governments and whatnot. It's thinking in systems uh primer. Primer. Take
1: your pick. Yeah. By Donnell H. Meadows. It's I think it's one of the lesser known books, but it's one of those I think the classic that everyone thinks is is the the fifth discipline by Peter Senge and it's I think this kind of a you step an abstraction level or two up from your code and this is kind of a stuff that you end up worrying about is like a very simple systems that have like an actors and they have interfaces then there are stuff in the system that make it work as an entity and it doesn't need to be anything uh, complicated. It's It can be a, like a bathtub that has an incoming uh, water flow and outgoing water flow. It can be a store inventory. You, you have stuff stolen from you. You have the stuff that is delivered from the factory. And, and, and then there then are the customers that buy from you. Or if you have fresh produce, something may, may go bad before it's sold and stuff like that. And you end up in those in those systems, you easily end up in in situations that you can't really predict or fix with any kind of a simple simple solution. You need to consider that what are the delays, what are the feedback loops, what is the system doing itself it's It's not just that someone who's making sure that store has everything. It's is not their smartness or stupidity that makes the store run out of beer on a hot summer day. It's all kinds of interfaces that convenience store has to other other people and even weather that affect everything.
0: Yeah, it's it's really an interesting way to like say, look, sometimes you need to go to a higher level and see all the things moving together. And you said you think this can apply to like software systems or. Human systems, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of a. I've done like a. I've mostly been in in a pretty small companies uh, lately, but I've also gone to big big IT departments to like cloud consultation and stuff like that. There are a thousand people that everyone is smart when you take them apart, but then <laughs> then when when they work together with all the systems that have piled up during like twenty years. It's really slow and you sometimes end up stuff that you really can't understand why, why. If you ask anyone, they will say that, well, this is not an optimal way of doing things. When I was young, I was like a gung-ho <laughs> nerd going there and telling, them, Hey, you, you need to fix it like this and this and this, but you can't really really do that unless you go like a step up or step two and ask, is there something that I don't know? If this this ticketing system makes everything last two weeks, whenever I want something, it takes two weeks. These people are not stupid. You understand that. Uh, So what is it there you can do to perhaps make things faster?
0: Why does it take two weeks for me to get a new keyboard when right across the street, there's a store that sells the keyboard I want? (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly
1: yeah when you're a big organizers and those things start adding up
0: yeah yeah there's a nice quote from the book that says some of the biggest problems facing the world war hunger poverty and environmental degradation are essentially system failures they cannot be solved by fixing one piece in isolation from the others because even seemingly minor details have enormous power to undermine the best efforts of too narrow-minded thinking pretty cool yeah,
1: yeah, I like the book, and it's it's one of those like uh, one evening or two evening books, and then you can, if this is something you really like, there are a lot of books about systems thinking, this area in general, uh, and also design thinking, which is kind of a, perhaps the more fashionable choice nowadays compared to systems thinking.
0: Yeah, the next one that you chose is somewhat related to this, called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, and this is this is a really cool book. I haven't read it. I've I've sort of put it on my list of things to read, but I haven't got to it. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, this is the word irrational is is not the right word, but it's about people can't help themselves. They have like a this fast thinking thinking system, which is evolutionary creation of like you detect a danger and you need to right. react immediately. I heard
0: a noise. Is that a lion or a squirrel?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> stuff like that. There's this slow deliberate side of you that can solve mathematical puzzles and can learn other languages and, and make programs <laughs> make programs and stuff like that. And it's kind of a um, pairing with the other one is also the about face and thinking in systems. It, it's kind of a, um, you need to understand people and people aren't as like a, as left brain as our industry often thinks.
0: Yeah, you were a philosophy major, right? A lot of the people in the, like Hobbes and um, those guys, they talked about like the rational person versus the irrational. (laughs) And they they often treated um, people as just rational thinkers. A lot of the economic policy and and, uh, and, uh, capitalism and John Keynes and those types of guys, they always say, okay, people are going to act rationally for themselves. But maybe not, right?
1: <laughs> no, yeah, it's exactly. And it's, it's not like irrational means that you follow the same rules all the time. And it's this book is full of examples that show that no, it's really easy to trick people and it takes a conscious effort. And sometimes it doesn't even help you. you just like you can't help yourself that if someone says that this is worth $1,000 and you know that it's not true. That's called a price anchor. You know that it's not not even close to that. And you, st- even knowing that and even knowing the effect, you still have the $1,000 there affecting your evaluation of the price.
0: Right. Like here, this thing is normally sold for $1,000, but it's on sale for 599 Yeah. You can trick people to make them think it's a good deal versus... Well, it's just for five ninety nine. They might go. Well, that's not a good deal. It's way too expensive.
1: Yeah, and when you see the price five ninety nine, you start thinking through your needs and your values. But when you contrast it with with the thousand dollar going rate, and it's it's like, oh well, it it's practically free. Can I buy it?
0: Yeah, the craziest example that I can think of is Black Friday, the crazy shopping experience after Thanksgiving in the U.S. Every year. Yeah. So bring this back to uh, software. Like, uh, what lessons can we take from this for helping, like, users, helping designer software, things like that?
1: All these books like build up like a toolbox of things that are outside the like immediate day-to-day programming, and it's really good to understand people. Even if you are writing like back-end software, you are still writing software for people, and people are not well. You are serving them. You are, you are in a service business. You need to be the like a really good waitress that serves them with the stuff that they need, with the stuff that uh, that solves their problem.
0: Right, even if they don't necessarily know they need it, maybe, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's like a really good software, so stuff that solves a problem that the user is not even aware of.
0: This portion of Talk Python is brought to you by us. As many of you know, I have a growing set of courses to help you go from Python beginner to novice to Python expert, and there are many more courses in the works. So please consider TalkPython training for you and your team's training needs. If you're just getting started, I've built a course to teach you Python the way professional developers learn, by building applications. Check out my Python jumpstart by building 10 apps at talkpython.fm slash course. Are you looking to start adding services to your app? Try my brand new consuming HTTP services in Python. You'll learn to work with RESTful, HTTP services, as well as SOAP, JSON, and XML data formats. Do you want to launch an online business? Well, Matt Mackay and I built an Entrepreneur's Playbook with Python for Entrepreneurs. This 16-hour course will teach you everything you need to launch your web-based business with Python. And finally, there's a couple of new course announcements coming really soon. So if you don't already have an account, be sure to create one at training.talkpython.fm to get notified. And for all of you who have bought my courses, Thank you so much. It really, really helps support the show. Those were the 10 books, and then you gave us a, a plus one, right?
1: Yeah, this uh, plus one is, like, a, I think everyone should have, a like, a fun book outside your...
0: Outside your specialty, right?
1: Yeah, outside your specialty, you should have a one book, a one fun book. And mine is, Learn Your Haskell for Great Good. It's like I'm fascinated by Haskell. I really don't understand anything about it, but it's this book. I occasionally pick up and read a chapter there look more dads and look at monads and look at higher order functions, which is also that is very applicable to any any kind of a Python application. But it, this is kind of a you probably have your your own fun book that you go every now and back to every now and then, and this is mine.
0: Yeah, this is really cool. It's um illustrated. It's supposed to be funny, but it also is supposed to teach you Haskell. And I think from a programming perspective, there's real value in knowing a language that's really different from what you do day to day. Yeah. And it's right.
1: I believe that you also need to like know pretty theoretical stuff. And uh, I, well, somebody might disagree with me, but I, I think Haskell is mostly a theoretical thing. It's, <laughs> it has a nice type system and it, it has nice abstractions on on side effects and stuff like that, but it's I probably wouldn't write production code with it.
0: Sure. The closest thing that I learned and studied and know a little bit close to this is Lisp or Scheme. And I would not go write anything in that at all. There's like four languages I would choose before I would pick that language for for (laughs) a thing at least. But it really opened my eyes to oh, the way we can write programs and think through solving problems algorithmically is way broader than I thought.
1: Yeah. One of those Scheme, Lisp, or Haskell are really good at that. My programming language is 101. was an AFL. I, I don't know if you remember that language back from the early 90s. Uh, which language? <laughs> AFL.
0: Yeah, I, I do remember the name, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah,
1: it's like um, object-oriented programming to the banks. It's, it's like all sorts of things that you you have multiple inheritance there. One of the really cool things about that language was like a design by contract. It had like a language level support for assertions in classes like preconditions for functions and uh, post conditions for functions and invariants for classes and all all, all that kind of stuff it's probably something you wouldn't use today but it's it gives you a nice perspective on how other people think of the problems that we face as a programmers
0: yeah absolutely all right so learn you a haskell for great good very nice okay so this has been a very interesting list and Everyone has their own list of things that they, they really like and certainly many of these books are on my list as well. I would say if people are listening, check out the episode page and go to the bottom. There's a discussion section. Put your favorite book or two on there and we can have a, a really nice list if everybody comes and contributes uh something that's not there yet. I think that'll be Lots of fun. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Okay, so before we get out of here, let me ask you the two questions. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you run?
1: I used to be a solid Vim guy, and when I'm uh, not coding, I use that. As uh, I used to be like, this can handle a broken terminal after a nuclear war. I, I can really <laughs> do anything with this. Uh, and <laughs> then I realized maybe this is not a reason to choose a programming <laughs> <the> environment <laughs> in 2010s and then i started learning things uh, when doing java i really enjoyed intellij and i i've also used intellij stuff like resharper on .Net, and it was quite easy to jump to pycharm and i'm i'm now a pycharm convert i i really use it uh like a that's the only thing that I open up when doing Python. I've tried like Visual Studio Code, I really liked it, but I I already had familiarized myself with PyCharm, and cost of change was not justified. I I would say. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, all
0: right, Go PyCharm. That's that's my favorite as well. And notable PyPI package.
1: Yeah, well, it's I I had to in my mind. It's like the old one, the Natural language toolkit for Python, which solves many problems that we solved many problems like twenty years ago that people are struggling today with with any any kind of a text processing and splitting text to, like sentences or paragraphs and stuff like that and and in multiple languages. But the one that I picked today is called Newspaper. I'm so fascinated with this one right now. It's just like I was writing one of those web scraper things a couple of months back, and then I just... There must be something that you could do with newspapers directly. And it's it's like a full-blown system for picking up newspaper, uh, like uh, articles from a newspaper page. And, and then when you have the article pick up its title, its main text, pictures and stuff like that. It's
0: I'm flipping through the, the GitHub page here. This thing is incredible. There's some things that I'm like, oh that's pretty neat. I could probably use that someday. This just makes me want to try it like straight up.
1: Yeah, it's it's like uh one of those Python comes with that batteries included thingy. This just made me happy when I found this. This is this is exactly it's like the batteries included and you don't need to write your own damn web scraper again for the thousandth yeah. time.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let me give people a sense of this. So um, I'll put the link, of course, in the show notes. But you go and you install it and you say from newspaper import article. And then you say create an instance of the article and you give it a URL like some news article. Literally give it like the page of that. Say download. You can get the HTML. You can parse it. And it has a list of authors. Publish date. It has the date. You can say, what's the top image? (laughs) You can run an NLP processing on it. It has the keywords and a summary and all sorts of craziness. It's really, really fascinating.
1: It doesn't work as well on all web pages, but it's really, really impressive that you even have something like this.
0: Cool. All right. That's a really great recommendation. I've never heard of it. So thank you. Yeah. All right, Timo. It was really fun to talk about these books and reminisce on some old ones and learn about some new ones for me. So thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. You bet. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest has been Timo Kola, and this episode has been brought to you by Rollbar and us right here at Talk Python Training. Rollbar takes the pain out of errors. They give you the context and insight you need to quickly locate and fix errors that might have gone unnoticed until your users complain, of course. As Talk Python to Me listeners, track a ridiculous number of errors for free at rollbar.com slash talkpythontome. Are you or a colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried books and videos that just left you bored by covering topics point by point? Well, check out my online course, Python Jumpstart by building 10 apps at talkpython.fm slash course to experience a more engaging way to learn Python. And if you're looking for something a little more advanced, try my Write Pythonic code course at talkpython.fm slash pythonic. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top.